What do you get someone for their 125th anniversary? Plans are currently underway in the United Kingdom for the Platinum Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II, celebrating her 70th year on the throne in 2022. That's an incredibly long time, but still nowhere near 125 years. Most gifting guides only go to the 85th anniversary, for whatever strange reason. In the United Kingdom, the gift for the 85th anniversary is wine. And in the United States, the traditional gift is something made of moonstone. So for 125 years, we need to get a little bit creative. Let's say one part green emerald for the 55th anniversary and two parts orange coral for the 35th anniversary. Orange and green, the colors you can find on the city of Miami's flag, a city celebrating its quasquicentennial today. This day in Miami history, July 28, 1896, the day the city of Miami was incorporated and changed South Florida forever. The high times and low times All in the nightlife will open your eyes But when the day breaks You feel the sun kiss If this paradise on what you wish If you know anything about the founding of the city of Miami, it means you're likely familiar with the Orange Blossom story. The story goes that in the winter of 1894-1895, there was a disastrous freeze in Florida, killing most of its citrus crop. Julia Tuttle, who then owned a square mile of land on the Miami River, better known at that time as Fort Dallas, sprung into action. Her part of Florida didn't experience the freeze, and in her entrepreneurial spirit, decided to reach out to Henry Flagler, then in charge of what would become the Florida East Coast Railway. Her method of attraction? Orange blossoms. She decided to pick and send orange blossoms untouched by the freeze to Mr. Flagler. The rest, as most believe, is history. And to be honest, this isn't one of those cases where the history is actually wildly wrong. There are some important figures that oftentimes get left out, like William and Mary Brickle, yes, that Brickle, who also owned land in what we now know as Miami, and who were also intimately involved in the idea of bringing the railway to what would become Miami. But there is another name, James Ingram. Ingram is one of those familiar historical archetypes, the man behind the man. He worked with Henry Flagler, but didn't always work with the man who would eventually help create Miami. Jim Robinson of the Orlando Sentinel wrote a story about him in 1992 and used the pretty fantastic lead. James Ingram was on a first-name basis with three of Florida's most influential Henrys of the late 1800s. Ingram was the president of Henry Shelton Sanford's South Florida Railroad Company until it was purchased by Henry Plant and made part of the Plant system in 1883. Plant was to Florida's west coast, as Henry Flagler is to Florida's East Coast. Plant helped develop much of what we now know to be the West Coast of Florida, thanks to his investments in railroads and in steamliners, all of which were connected to the larger Plant system. Ingram would work with Plant for nearly a decade, and in 1892 would lead an expedition on behalf of the Plant system into the Florida Everglades. The objective? Find a way to connect the Plant system by rail to the Miami River. 
It was not an easy job. Ingram reported losing more than 13 pounds over the course of his journey through the Everglades. He concluded that it would be possible for the plant system to run through the Everglades. It would require draining and dredging, but it could happen. But he also concluded that it would be much easier for an East Coast railway to connect to the Miami River. Where did James Ingram stay after navigating through the Everglades? Why, of course, it was Mary Brickle's place on the Miami River. Who was at that time working on a Florida East Coast Railway? Why, of course, Henry Flagler. Flagler would hire Ingram that same year from Henry Plant and eventually put him in charge of the railway as the, quote, third vice president. It was Flagler who, after being contacted by Julia Tuttle, sent James Ingram to Fort Dallas slash Miami to see what actually happened after the freeze. And the answer was nothing. The citrus was still juicy. The produce was still alive and well. And yes, orange blossoms remained on the trees. After Ingram reported back to Flagler, there was a simple question to ask. What did Julia Tuttle want? And what she wanted was the railroad to Miami. In exchange, she would give up half a square mile along the Miami River for development by Henry Flagler. Some people like to look at the facts of this story and conclude that this is the orange blossom myth. That this story is an apocryphal tale that Miamians tell themselves, an oversimplified version of their history. And yes, you could argue it is an oversimplified version of history. If Henry Flagler was so steadfastly opposed to extending the railroad to Miami before the winter of 1894-1895, why had he hired James Ingram away from Henry Plant after his Everglades expedition in 1892. And yes, it was more than just a single orange blossom that convinced Henry Flagler in 1895. There was produce and citrus and other things. But there was actually an orange blossom. And considering some of the other tall tales we oftentimes tell ourselves in our understanding of history, to me, this story's close enough for jazz. Eventually, terms are hammered out. Julia Tuttle... William and Mary Brickle and Henry Flagler agree to come together, bring the railroad, and lay down the first marker towards the Miami that we know today. On April 13th, 1896, Henry Flagler's railroad arrives in Miami for the first time, and over the course of the next three months and two weeks, Miami will go from river outpost to official city at breakneck pace. Miami's first newspaper the Miami Metropolis, which eventually became the Miami News, published its first edition on May 15, 1896, exactly one month after the Flagler train rolled into town. If the name didn't tell you what the publisher of the newspaper had in mind, the closing paragraph of its salutary editorial did. We predicted in a letter to another journal a few weeks ago that Miami would be the most populous place on the East Coast south of St. Augustine, before the close of the present year, 1896. We felt we were very conservative in our statement. We did not want to be thought wild. The town of Miami has grown so rapidly during the past few weeks that we were warranted in saying that it will be the largest town south of St. Augustine before July 1st, the close of the first half of the year. That prediction would be put to the test when an effort was launched to create the city of Miami. According to the laws of the state of Florida at the time, 
A municipality with fewer than 300 registered voters was known as a town. And a municipality with more than 300 registered voters was referred to as a city. There were no cities on the east coast of Florida, south of St. Augustine. If Miami could get 300 registered voters and get them to agree to incorporation as a municipality, a city it would be. A voter registration drive was launched and announcements were placed in the metropolis. Throughout the intervening weeks, stories filled the metropolis highlighting a lack of infrastructure in the community. Whether it was a poorly placed post office, a lack of a bridge over the Miami River, or poor sanitation, the metropolis identified incorporation as the cure for what ailed Miami. As a city, it could tackle these problems head on. The meeting was scheduled to take place on July 28, 1896, in the hall over the lobby at 2 p.m. Now, you might think the lobby was maybe some sort of municipal building, but remember, Miami was largely under construction at the time. And so the lobby is actually a pool hall, one of the most popular businesses in Miami at the time. On the day of the meeting, there are two main points of drama. One, would Miami have more than 300 registered voters to its name? And two, would more than two-thirds of those voters turn out to vote? If the registered voters were below 300, they wouldn't be voting for a city. And if more than two-thirds of the registered voters didn't turn out, they couldn't vote at all. On Incorporation Day, there were 424 registered voters in the territory that was to be incorporated. And 368 of them were present on the second floor of the lobby. That's approximately 87% of all the registered voters in Miami at the time. Once the meeting is called to order, business can proceed. And after clearly defining the name, seal, and boundaries, registered voters unanimously approve the city of Miami. Voting for elected officials occurred later that evening, and the results were slightly more competitive. But at the end of the day, the die was cast. John B. Riley was Miami's first mayor, John Graham its clerk, Young Gray would become its marshal, and William Brown, Daniel Cosgrove, Frederick Morse, Joseph McDonald, Edward Brady, Frank Budge, and the aforementioned publisher of the Miami Metropolis, Dr. Walter S. Graham, swore their oaths to become aldermen of the city of Miami. Obviously, the most significant part of the story here is the incorporation of the city itself. But there is a really interesting footnote that comes with that incorporation. When you look at the notes of the meeting, registered voters were divided by race. In Miami at the time, there were a total of 243 white registered voters and 181 black registered voters. All of these voters were men. Women didn't gain the ability to vote in Miami municipal elections until the late 19-teens, and the 19th Amendment didn't become effective until 1920. But what I find most interesting isn't that there are black voters. It's the number of black voters. 181 out of 424. There were only 243 white registered voters in the city of Miami. It wouldn't be a city without its black registered voters. Remember, you needed 300 to be a city. If voter registration had been whites only in Miami, the creation of the city of Miami as we know it wouldn't have taken place. There is, of course, a sad coda 
to this realization. Think back to April 13th, 1896, the day that the Florida East Coast Railway rolls into Miami for the first time, the event that ultimately leads to the incorporation of the city of Miami. Something else happened on April 13th, 1896. Lawyers stood in front of the United States Supreme Court and argued the case, Plessy versus Ferguson. That case would eventually lead to separate but equal being codified as constitutionally sound in the United States, leading to Jim Crow laws that would impede the ability of African Americans to vote all across the South, including Miami. It's unlikely that any of the registered voters sitting on the second floor of the lobby pool hall in what became downtown Miami had any idea of the consequences of that decision on their lives going forward. All they knew was that a city was born, a city that would eventually grow beyond their wildest dreams, a city that we would come to know as the Magic City. I want to thank you as always for taking time out from your day to listen to this day in Miami history. There are a couple of resources I want to particularly highlight as useful in my research for today's episode. First off, the writing and work of Dr. Paul George, who is the resident historian at History Miami. Uh, Basically, anyone who's working in the history of Miami is just following Dr. George's lead. Secondly, I want to highlight Casey Pickett, who hosts uh, an incredibly useful website, miami-history.com. And if you want to learn anything about the, the background of Miami, it is a great place to start. Third, I want to highlight the Florida Digital Newspaper Library which is part of the University of Florida's Digital Collections. It is a really incredible resource that has a a lot of old newspapers from Florida, in particular, some of the oldest copies of the Miami Metropolis. If you like old news, that is where you should start. And lastly, uh, the Special Collections and University Archives of the Green Library at FIU. That collection actually has the original notes uh, from the City of Miami's incorporation. You can actually go and read an account of the meeting from that day. You can actually see the names of the registered voters. You can actually see the results of the election for the office holders of the city of Miami. Really incredible stuff. I do encourage you to check it out. I also encourage you to follow us on social media. You can find us at This Day Miami Pod, all one word. Uh, and if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast provider may be, Please make sure to follow or subscribe. And if you're feeling particularly generous, uh, give us a rating, a five-star rating preferably. Uh, And if you don't think it's a five-star rating, just contact us on social media to let us know what you think we can do better. As always, I'd love to hear feedback on this episode. Or if you have an idea for a future episode, please do let us know. Again, thank you so much for your time. And until next time, I've been Matthew Bunch. The high times